never ends, at least not this side of glory. It never ends, but it's not the end. It never ends, but it's not the end. I'm not going to ask you to stand again this week because we'll be looking at most of the chapter, and so I won't read it all. We'll just kind of pick it up as we go through it. But First Samuel chapter 1 is where we're going to be, and uh, I want to read to you a story. Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll, many of you know him, pastor for many years, and I think he's still on the radio on some stations. He wrote a book called Growing Strong, and he quotes author Edgar Jackson in that book. And Edgar Jackson, this quote, is about grief, and he's describing what grief is. Because if I asked you this morning to give me a definition of grief, I'm sure that you would all have something a little bit different to say, maybe some similarities. But I thought that this was a really encompassing definition of grief. He says, Grief is a young widow trying to raise her three children alone. Grief is the man so filled with shocked uncertainty and confusion that he strikes out at the nearest person. Grief is a mother walking daily to a nearby cemetery to stand quietly and alone a few minutes before going about the task of the day. She knows that part of her is in the cemetery, just as part of her is in her daily work. He says, grief is the silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone who is no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who had died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know that they are not and never will be again. Grief is a whole cluster of adjustments, apprehensions, and uncertainties that strike life in its forward progress and make it difficult to redirect the energy of life. I believe for myself and being a pastor for quite a few years now and being around a lot of folks in this room and outside of this room who have experienced deep grief, it's probably one of the most powerful emotions that any of us ever have to deal with or experience. And the thing about grief is it manifests itself in so many other ways. Maybe anger, maybe hurt, maybe depression. It can show up in so many different other forms than just what's going on underneath the surface. I found a quote this week by William Shakespeare that I believe is so true to not just the message today, but to how we grieve in our lives. He said, everyone can master a grief, but he that has it. That's the thing I really want to talk about today. Because sometimes, as believers, we simplify things too much. I'm not saying that the Bible isn't simple in a lot of ways, and the directions of God not comprehensive enough that we can follow and grasp. But I'm saying, there's sometimes when people are going through life, and they don't need a quote, they don't need a cliche answer, that's not going to help in the moment. It's not going to help. It's easy for me, it's easy for you to say the right things when it's not your loved one in the casket that day. But when it's you in that position, I'm not saying that those things don't matter because they do. But in the moment, they're not ultimately going to be the thing that's needed to get you through, to get that person through. I've found over the years 
most people don't remember anything I said or very little of what I said at a visitation or a funeral. But they'll never forget I was there. And that's the same with you. Making a meal, sending a card, going to visit, taking them places, running errands for them. All those little acts of kindness in the moment are just as or more important to the grieving person than having the right quote to share or even the right scripture verse. And again, encouraging people with the word is never wrong. But I believe in those moments we have got to put the scriptures into action. We've got to not just tell them that there is a good and loving God, but show them the way that a good and loving God cares for them through His people, through His church. That's where the effectiveness of ministry really comes in, guys. It's not always about knowing the right things or articulating the right things. It's living your faith out and being able to minister to people when they need things. I, I went through, I, I, I have many more, I'm sure, other places, but I went through and I found a stack of these cards. And, you know, I, I looked through some of them last night, um, just a few of the funerals that I've done over the years. And a lot of these cards have pictures on the front and names in the front of, of people that their loved ones are in this room. You know, and I mean, I can look around the room, Debbie with Brother Mike, I mean, Kaylee with my family, Jimmy with my family. I mean, I can just go around, you know, um, uh, Curtis. I just, I, I can look around the room. Um, uh, Gary Ems, I mean, Jim Watson. You, I mean, I could just rattle off Nate, Peggy and, and George Martin. I mean, it's just like I look at the cards, I look at your faces, and I still remember those people just as if they were here today, you know, and um, their life and, and the things that they've meant to me in the church don't depart when they do. They've left a piece of them in our lives. And, you know, I, I've walked through that grief with so many people, uh, and I've experienced that grief in my own life. And so I'm, I'm not an expert by any means at how to handle it. But I believe that the Bible shows us many ways on how we can take a horrible situation where people are grieving and use it to point people to Jesus, to bring Him glory, and to help people come out of this on the other side stronger and with more hope than they ever have if we will allow God and the Holy Spirit to do the work and not get in the way of what He's trying to do. Because when grief comes, whether you're prepared for it, you know it's coming, or in this situation we're going to look at today with David, it just blindsides you and you had no chance to prepare. It may hit you a little different, but it still hits you. You're never prepared completely with what grief is going to do to your life. And so like I said in our story today, David, he just came out of a huge victory in 1 Samuel 30 on last year. Go back to that, but... You can read about that this week if you haven't already. He had this huge victory. And in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, Israel has a huge defeat. Saul, the king, is dead. Jonathan, David's best friend, is dead. Israel has been defeated. The Philistines are rejoicing in victory, taking over the land that Israel occupied. And what Israelites are left alive are scattered all over the place. But here's the thing. There wasn't Fox News and CNN and social media and texting going on 
David's victory in chapter 30 and Israel's defeat in chapter 31, neither side knows what's going on. They don't know about David's victory, and David doesn't know what's just happened to Israel. And so he's going on celebrating while Israel is mourning. They're grieving while he is rejoicing. And isn't life that way? Like so many times in a day, how many different emotions can we have sometimes in one day? I mean, minute by minute sometimes our emotions can change. And so I want us to look at a few things here today real quick about grieving and and how we get through it and how we can grow from it and how we can ultimately help others in the future through our experiences. Because Ecclesiastes 3.1 says that to everything there is a what? A season. A time for every purpose under heaven. Seasons, my friends, means that things will change. If you're in a season of rejoicing, enjoy it, but don't settle there because another season will come. And if you're in a season of heaviness, don't throw up your hands and quit because that season will too end and something better will come along. To everything there is a season So David is in a season of rejoicing, and in a moment that season is going to transition into a a season of grief. I want us to see three things this morning. Look down at verses 11 and 12, and here's the first point. When we grieve, there is an anguish that comes with grief. There's an anguish that comes with it. So this man escapes from the Philistine battle, and he comes to David. And he is sharing information. This is an Amalekite who had lived in the land of Israel and was in submission to Saul's reign. So he was a foreigner, but he was living underneath the government rule, if you will, of Israel at the time. And he comes and relays the message to David about what's happened. Saul has been killed and everything that's went on. And notice David's response, this response of anguish in verses 11 and 12. David took hold of his clothes, he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And what did they do after that? So this is a sign of deep grief and agony. They're in anguish. They mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul, for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord, and for the house or the nation of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Sometimes grief is so deep and so difficult that it hurts worse than physical pain. A lot of you have had some physical ailments, but grief is a whole other animal, and it can hurt in ways that physical pain cannot. But I found it interesting, when you look at that list in verse 12, that they're mourning and weeping and fasting for Saul and Jonathan, the people of the Lord and the house of Israel. For David... If you've been with us through this series or if you've ever read his life, is there anyone on that list that seems a bit out of place for David to be mourning over? Saul. I mean, let's be honest. Saul, for the majority of the time that David was with him, was an enemy. Saul had continually sought to kill David. David had opportunities, remember, to kill Saul, and he never would show vengeance for himself. He always respected and honored Saul's position, 
even when Saul did wrong, David did not act out against him. And even in death, David is showing a godly example of forgiveness, of allowing God to be the final judge. And I believe, as we look at this text, we didn't read it all, but when this Amalekite comes and shares this news, I believe the intention, and some commentators agree with this, I believe the intention of the Amalekite was, in his mind, he thought, David is going to be relieved and perhaps even glad that his enemy is dead. That finally this man who has pursued his life for so long is gone, that he is going to be grateful that I am bringing this news to him, and therefore he will reward me and celebrate this thing. Now that's not how that happens, but I believe that was what the Amalekite thought was going to happen. Do any of you, have any of you, ever watched the movie Tombstone? Well, I, I, great movie, it's Tombstone, I like that movie a lot. There's a scene in there where they're playing cards, Doc Holliday and one of the guys, Ike Clanton's playing cards, and Doc Holliday keeps winning the poker games over and over and over again, and after about the 12th time, Ike Clanton gets upset and calls him a cheater, and they have a little bit of war words, and Ike gets up from the table and walks over to the bar area, and Doc Holliday's coughing up blood and falls over on the ground. I don't know if you remember that scene, but anyway, my point is, as he's laying on the ground, Ike Clant looks at him and he simply says, I hope you die. I hope you die. And that was the attitude that the Amalekite, I believe, would have had towards Saul on David's end. But David didn't want Saul to die. David didn't rejoice that his enemy died. What a godly example. And I want you to draw this away from this message today, number one, as we talk about anguish for grief, but in Ezekiel 33:11, the Bible speaking of God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You see that in the middle of that verse? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Because this is often a stumbling block for many Unbelievers, They say, or they think, if God is so loving and God is so good, why would he send people to hell? Why would he condemn people to hell if he loves us? Well, that's a multifaceted question with a lot of answers to it. But number one, the Bible does say that the wages of sin is death. There is a separation between sinful man and a holy God that can't be breached by us and our good works. And it can't be breached by a just and perfect God saying, well, we'll just ignore it, pretend it didn't happen. Something has to be done, something had to be done to cover the cost that sin demands. And so God is not taking pleasure when people reject the offer that Jesus Christ made by laying down his life and shedding his blood so that you wouldn't have to die. Jesus dies in place of sinful men who receive that gift by faith. But when you reject that, a just God will honor your decision and remain you will remain separated from him. That's what the Bible teaches. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches that hell was not created for man initially, but for the devil and his angels. When Satan fell and took a third of the angels with him, hell was created for them. In the garden when Satan tempted Eve and Adam, to eat of the fruit and plunged mankind into that. 
Hell then became a final place for man as well. But it wasn't initially the case. And so God takes no pleasure in that. But as a just and holy God, He absolutely will exact perfect judgment on those who reject His Son. David chose to leave judgment for Saul to God. He didn't take it on himself. But I want us to see this too in the grieving of David for Saul. When someone dies that we love, we obviously grieve them easier than someone that didn't love us or maybe that we didn't love that much either. But ultimately, guys, we should always grieve for anyone that dies apparently without Jesus. There should be a grief in our hearts, whether that person was the most wicked man or woman that ever walked the earth, to know that they died without Christ is tragic. And we ought to not celebrate anyone's death, especially those who didn't know Jesus. And I believe that that should spur us on to be greater witnesses, to do our part. We can't save anyone, but to do our part to make sure that people don't die without Jesus, at least without hearing the gospel message. There are people dying second by second, passing into eternity, and a lot of them don't know him. What are we doing? Are we grieved by that? David was grieved and he has anguish over those he loved, and even those who didn't love him back. Number two, I want us to see that when we grieve, like I said earlier, it shows up in different ways. It's not always just a brokenness of the soul and nothing else. And one of the ways that it shows up here is, number two, there's an anger that comes out of this thing. Look at verses 13 to 16. David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. So David said to him, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Here's an interesting thing. If you read what happened in chapter 31, the battle that went on with Philistines and Israel, and how Saul ultimately dies. And then if we went back and read at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 1, the Amalekites' retelling of that story, they don't match. And many, many um, liberal scholars and unbelievers have looked at this and say, well, see, there's a contradiction in the Bible the story in chapter 31 doesn't match the retelling of the Amalekites. But again, I believe it's pretty clear he intentionally changed the story a little bit to make it seem that he was the one that came along and ultimately put Saul out of his misery so that David would rejoice in his enemy being killed and give honor and favor to this Amalekite. I don't believe for a moment, or he wouldn't have showed up, that he ever thought that by saying this and doing this that his own life would be taken. But yet here we are because David has such reverence and respect for Saul's position as the king of Israel and how God has told him, don't touch my anointed. Even though Saul was out of the will of God, God had put him in that position and it was God's place to give him take life. And this man, when he claims that he was the one that was involved in the taking of Saul's life, David says, okay, we're under the law an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
You took a life, your life is required. And so David puts him to death. There is, a, in David's case, a just and righteous anger about what has taken place. But one of the things about grief is, in the moment when those emotions are so strong, guys, logic goes out the window. And all we are left with is our emotions. And one of those emotions that I've had, and I'm sure you have had, is anger. Anger. When someone you love is taken, there is a part of you that has so many questions that don't get answered and may never get answered that that frustration boils over into anger. And that is a normal response for human beings who are grieving. But in the moment, that anger, that emotional anger, is irrational. Now, we don't need someone to come and tell somebody in that moment that because they're not going to receive it and they're going to just get more upset. But it is irrational because most of the time it's misdirected. You're angry at people who had nothing to do with the situation. You're angry at people who want to help you. And a lot of times you're angry at the only one that can help you, and that's God. Your anger is focused upward because in your mind you think, he could have helped, he should have helped, he didn't help. And I don't like that, and I'm upset with that. C.S. Lewis, who has written many great books, wrote a book, he lost his wife to cancer wrote a book called Grief Observed about his experiences going through that with his wife. And he said this, one of many great quotes in that book. He said, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. Your whole life changes. Nothing is the same, or few things are the same, when death comes into our lives. And here's why I've seen in my life and what I believe as a pastor I've seen over the years with people that I have walked through difficult situations with when someone is grieving and why ultimately they get angry with God. And here's what it is. Ultimately, we want our wish more than we wanted His will. We wanted the things that we wanted more than we wanted to surrender ultimately to what His will was. I know that some of you in this room may be super spiritual, and so you're not going to get this. But I can tell you, one day you will, when you walk through it. When you walk through it, you'll think, how could someone possibly get angry with God? How could they be that hurt? I'm thankful that you've not experienced something yet when you got to that point. I hope you never do. But don't be shocked if one day you're on that end. say it that way, maybe you just show it in your actions, but you're angry because you're grieving and you're hurting. And I'll tell you this, there'll be times in those moments when your grief is so heavy, you won't be able to pray. People want to pray with you, and that's the last thing on earth you want to do in that moment is pray. People will come with their devotionals and their Bibles and want to read, and you won't even want to look at that thing. You just won't. And it's okay to be honest about that. I think we, we feel like we have got to be so super, super spiritual and so strong or else we don't have any faith or think we don't have any faith when 
reality is, guys, grief shakes us deeply. And the Bible says that God is faithful. He remains faithful when we are faithless. And I'm thankful that it's not our grip on Christ that keeps us, but His grip on us. That's ultimately what sees us through. There's going to be times when you're not strong enough to hold on. He's always strong enough to hold on to you. And you need to remember that when you see others grieving and you think, why are they grieving that way? Grief doesn't have a normal pattern that everybody follows. It doesn't have a normal timetable. It's something that we just need to be there for people. And it's very hard to say, not my will, but thine be done. It's very hard. And listen, we need to pray with faith. I don't think for a moment that in the last 13 months, as we prayed for Ryder and his family, I don't think any of us wasn't praying earnestly for God to heal Ryder this side of heaven so that he could have more time. I know your hearts, I know my heart was to see him healed. And I know it's very easy to say things now like, well, he got his healing. He's in heaven with the Lord. Amen. Yes. But in those times of grieving for Krista and Brian and Jamie and the girls and the family that are close, you can know that and still the grief overwhelms you to the point where you can't grasp it. And we need to understand that, church, for ourselves and for those that we will come in contact with. It's not always about knowing the truth. It's not even about having the faith to believe the truth. But it's being patient with people as they walk through some of the darkest times of their life and just holding their hand when they can't do it alone. That is where oftentimes grief leads us to. Again, we know our loved ones in Christ are healed. We know that they are in a better place. We know all those things. But it's very hard in the moment to not be pulled down by grief into a place where we can't necessarily articulate or even joyfully express the belief in those things. But I want to close with this last thought. You can and you will come through this and be able to rejoice good and loving God, whose promises never fail. I'm not saying you rejoice in the situation. I'm not saying that you ever look back on that and say, what a good time that was in my life. I've shared many times my testimony and my sickness when I almost, well, I did die. And yet God gave me another chance to be here. And I look back on that, and I would never want to go through the pain, the surgeries, the two weeks in Miami Valley ICU and all the other stuff, the agony that my wife and family went through. I would never want to do that again, but I would never trade what God did through that. So many blessings came because of that circumstance. But I never saw that in the moment, and you won't either. But if you'll trust God to walk with you through the dark times, you will see His hand on every single situation and circumstance you went through. And you will be able to say, that wasn't good, but God is good. That wasn't good, but he worked all things together for good to those who love him. And you will be able to glorify and rejoice in him. David, after 
his anguish and after his anger, he's going to take an appraisal. That's the third thing. He's going to look back on the whole big picture, and he's going to draw some things. We're not going to read it all, but you could see in verses 17 to the end of the chapter there. He says, David then lamented in verse 17. Then David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And he told him to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. Not sure what the book of Jasher is. There's a lot of conjecture about it. It was probably a book that had the history of some great men of Israel and their exploits and the things that they did in their life. Whatever it was, it could have been a song book similar to the Psalms. But it was a book that would have been known to people. And in that book, it, it would talk about the things that Saul and Jonathan had done for the kingdom. And even in the midst of their several times, it says in that song, how the mighty have fallen. Even in the midst of their less than spectacular moments, David sought to memorialize these men and what they had done. And one of the things about grief is this. I don't believe, as the title of the message is, we don't just get over grief. Maybe ever, to some degree, we never completely get over grieving. But the only way we can ever move beyond it is to see something greater than our grief or see someone greater than our grief. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, a scripture I use all the time for funerals, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. He doesn't say we don't grieve, period. He says we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Christians and non-Christians are both going to grieve, but we are going to grieve differently because of who is in us and what that person has promised to us as believers a little bit later on, we'll get to this if we keep going through this series, David had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. David has a son with her as a result of that relationship. The son lives seven days and dies. During those seven days, David has fasted and prayed and put on sackcloth and ashes and mourned and cried out to God for help. And the son dies. And it says David got up changed his clothes, washed his face, and he had some food. And they looked at him and they say, what are you doing? Your son's dead. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, I can't bring him back to me, but I will go to him. That is the hope that only a believer can say. There is something there that only through Jesus Christ can you grab hold of. We can't bring them back, nor would we want to, nor would they want to come back. But we will see them again if we are in Christ, if we know Jesus. I want to close with this verse, John 16, verses 20 to 22. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, 20 to 22. Most assuredly, this is going to happen, Jesus is saying. Mark it down. Guarantee it. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will 
weep and lament. It's going to happen. So many Christians have been taught or believed that once they follow Jesus, nothing bad will ever come into their life, that they are guaranteed this life of victory, prosperity, and nothing evil will ever touch them. And as soon as bad things come into their life, they believe that God failed to keep his end of the bargain and he never made that promise. Quite the opposite. Jesus says, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. You think, well, that doesn't sound too good. I thought following Jesus meant that everything was going to be good. Everything will be good. But not everything here will be good. Jesus is who you get. And Jesus is who you will keep. When everything else in the world passes away, Jesus will be the constant for you. If you lose everything in life, you won't lose Him. And He won't lose you. He says, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. And here's the tragic thing. So many people, and some of you in this room are maybe in this boat, you go through times of grieving this is where you're at, and this is where you're staying. You refuse to move on from the grief. And there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of times, the funny thing about grief is we feel guilty. When we lose a spouse, we feel guilty to ever even think about going on a date again. Somehow we believe that that would be a betrayal for us to even think about loving someone again. Listen, you will never replace a child, a spouse, or anyone you love. They're not meant to be replaced. It's like if you lose a limb, if you were an amputee that lost a leg or an arm, that's gone. And you're never going to be able to live and function the same way completely without it. But there's no guilt in getting a prosthetic to try to live life again in this new season. And there's nothing wrong with you trying to move forward in your life doing those things. Don't let guilt keep you in that grieving stage. Don't let anger keep you in that grieving stage. Sometimes when we lose someone and we feel guilty, if we do move beyond the grieving, because we think as long as I'm grieving, I'm keeping their memory alive. I'm continually thinking about them. But you're thinking in an unhealthy way that is destroying your soul and your body. Physically, mentally, spiritually, that grief cannot be sustained indefinitely. Our bodies aren't meant to handle that type of pressure. Our spirits can only endure so much, God. At some point, we have got to try our best through the help of God and His Word and the Spirit and the church to move through the grief. Jesus says to them, He gives an illustration next in those verses. He says, But your sorrow will be turned into joy. And he gives the illustration of a woman having a child. Like any of you ladies that have experienced childbirth, you know that in the moment, that is not fun. But you would go through it a thousand times over for what is going to result in. You don't, once the pain is over and you hear that child cry and you hold that little baby for the first time, you've completely forgotten the pain because of the result. It's so much better. And that's what Jesus is saying. In this world, you are going to suffer. 
You are going to mourn. There's going to be bad things. But my friend, if you know Jesus, the victory that is ahead, the promises that He's given are so much greater that they don't compare to the things that are happening in your life now. I know that doesn't help in that moment when you are overwhelmed with grief. But as you try to move beyond it, and you think on those things, there is healing in your life that will come when you remember what Jesus has done. He says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. And He saves such that has a contrite spirit. You know, Jesus was described in the book of Isaiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with what? He knew all about it. He knew all about sorrow. He knew all about grief. Not just his own, but yours. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says that we don't have a great high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knows the pain you're facing right now. God knows the agony of losing a son. He knows the pain of betrayal. He knows the pain of hurt. He's experienced it. And this morning, if you are in that season of grief and you can't move past it, I'm asking you to consider the promises of God, the hope that is in Christ, and ask yourself, do I have that hope in me? If you're a believer, you do. You just might not be able to find it right now. But I believe that anybody with any kind of common sense would say, I want it. I want to be able to have the joy again in my life. I want to be able to never stop grieving over the one I love to some degree. But I want to be able to live again. I want to be able to feel again. I don't want to just be numb. I want to be able to be used by God. I want to be effective again. I want to have a purpose in life. Because a lot of times we live vicariously through our spouses and our kids, and when they're gone, we don't know how to live anymore on our own. But God made you for a purpose, and God wants to do something in your life, and you have got to allow Him to do that. And it comes to healing through the grief. It does. There's no guilt today in coming and saying, Lord, I need to move beyond this so that I can do the things I need to do in my life for you. And the bigger question is this. If you're not saved and you don't know Christ, there's going to come a time when you're going to face a season of grief and there's no hope that you have beyond this life outside of Jesus. And more importantly, you or yourself are going to stand before Him one day and not be able to give an answer because you'll be guilty separated from God. And you don't have to be. Today is the day of salvation. And Jesus Christ is available for you no matter what you've done, no matter who you are. He went to the cross. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he says, whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life. For you. you can be saved today just by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Phyllis is going to come. Monica is going to come. And they're going to sing a song of invitation. The invitation is when you respond to the message. I've given you what God has given me to share with you, and now it's up to you. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your healing that is possible through grief. 
I pray today for those in this room and those watching online who are in some stage of grief, perhaps, the anguish stage, the anger stage, and hopefully that they can move to the stage of appraisal where they see things beyond this grief and they're able to live again. Because you came to give life, and you came to give life abundantly. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would speak into the hearts of those that need to be able to live again. And that you would help them to do that through the power of Christ and the hope of the resurrection. In his name we pray. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, you come, don't have to wait. You come, the altar is open. We will pray with you. Grab somebody's hand and they'll pray.